Hi, this is Jill Jarris. From September 2017 through April 2020, this podcast was known as Olympic Fever. We've since changed its name to keep the flame alive, but we're committed to keeping our back catalog available to you. So please keep the name change and this disclaimer in mind as you listen to it. Olympic is a trademark of the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, or USOPC. Any use of Olympic in the Olympic Fever podcast is strictly for informational and commentary purposes. The Olympic Fever podcast is not an official podcast of the USOPC. The Olympic Fever podcast is not a sponsor of the USOPC, nor is Olympic Fever associated with or endorsed by the USOPC in any way. The content of Olympic Fever podcast does not reflect the opinions, standards, views, or policies of the USOPC, and the USOPC in no way warrants that content featured in Olympic Fever is accurate. Thanks for listening, and now on to the show. God, I was in heaven in Rio. I was in heaven. Mesdames et messieurs. The greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Oh! You can do it! You can do it! Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant! But that is an Olympic champion. Ready? Hello and welcome to Olympic Fever, the podcast for Olympic fans. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by the lovely Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you? Hello. It is cold and wintry in New England again. again. Yeah, we're hitting our fourth nor'easter. I forgot. I've stopped oh. counting. So all it's... I can say is we can't start talking about summer games and events. Until it, until it stops snowing. <laughs> yeah, it really doesn't put you in the mood, does it? Not ready for this. Oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, man. But uh, Paralympics, sad to say the flame is out. I that know. Was sad. It was so much fun. I really had a lot of fun watching them this time. So I'm glad I, I jumped in whole hog just watching everything. Right. And I'm glad NBC put on more coverage than ever that so that we could watch them, which is great. And yeah, I want to mention something we talked about last week. So mm -hmm. we talked about um, Oksana Masters right. and her injury. Yes. She posted on her Instagram um, how they put tape and wrapping on her arm mm -hmm. to mimic the motion of the motion and the action of ligaments. Really? She posted it to say thank you to the medical staff for putting her back together so that she could race and win. But if you have a chance to go and check out that particular video, it's unbelievable how they physically tape her arm and wrap it and tape it. And she's moving it as they're doing it. And it's a time-lapse photo. But they taped it to mimic how a ligament that is not working would move her arm. Wow. And that, that tape supported then the ligament that needed help. Right. Right. And it was... Really kind of, I've never seen that kind of, you know, I've always just, oh, I have this injury and I tape mm -hmm. or uh, sprain your ankle and you wrap it up. But this was a work of art. Wow. And pretty amazing. And so I think that goes back to our, our question about how do you prevent your body from that natural reaction mm -hmm. that this prevented her body from just dropping the gun and dropping the pole right. and not yeah. functioning. 
amazing. It is amazing what having a good medical team will do. Oh yeah. That's what I need. We I need a better <laughs> The right. Olympic fever needs a better medical team. <laughs> we'll work on that. That's on the yeah. list. Our medical staff. <laughs> And um, hair and makeup. We got to improve our hair and makeup team too. For, for the podcast. It's very important the... in podcasting. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Well, what did you think of the closing ceremonies? Beautiful again. Four, four for four. Four. It was, man, these Koreans really know how to put on a show. Right. But it was interesting that they didn't have the athletes come in together. They just kind of uh, were seated, it seemed like. And they had this stage. That you, they, yeah, you know what? I didn't even notice that. Isn't okay. that funny? Because that's such a big part of the... Right, the closing ceremonies with the Olympics because they can walk in together, but it looked like they were seated in certain areas because when I did see the camera on the U.S. athletes, it looked like they were just U.S. athletes in that section. Hmm. So I bet they mixed it up, though. Okay, but it was I beautiful. The themselves, yeah. It was sad. I, I know. I know. Now we really have to say goodbye to Pyeongchang. Yeah, right. Oh, but they did a great job. They did they a great really, job. So congratulations. They really did. They should be very proud. Yeah, absolutely. Congratulations. And we should all we and we should all go travel there to, to help their Don't tours. you want to? I do. I totally want to go to Korea now. I know. And it's I... just to see the country. It looked beautiful where they were, but I do want to, it's just, they did such a good job with the games that you want the area to succeed economically. Right. That's right. one of the things I keep thinking about. Like I, I, I know we're going to start getting the, the stories about, oh, look at the, look at all the venues that they aren't used, aren't used anymore. Right. Because right. that's one of the big popular stories right about now. Oh, look at what a waste the Olympics is because these venues are gone. But I, I really hope that they get to use their venues and don't don't lose them because it's it's helpful to have and, and it's helpful to have a lot of those venues in asia because like ski jumps and right sled and loose tracks and skeleton because then that can help boost interest in those sports so i hope right. that that they draw a lot of training and draw some events and i hope that people go to them and and try and i think it actually helps that the next winter games is once again in Asia. Right. Because it just creates a, an Asian circuit. If that's, you know, you have a European circuit, you have a right. North American circuit and a, there it, should be an Asian circuit right. for and, these and events. Now that you have facilities in Japan and Korea and Beijing is building theirs, you're going to have a nice little trifecta of right. places to be able to host world cup events and, other yeah. cup events. So I really hope that the international sport federations take that into consideration and start using that and uh, building sport around the world. So Yeah, we like that. Yes, yes, definitely. Yeah, exciting end to the games with the, the U.S. hockey team getting gold was... in overtime. What a crazy oh. game. And then the Koreans getting the bronze also... So exciting, and it was great to see a huge crowd just rooting for them. It was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. the the Paralympic hockey tournament was just so much fun to watch. Right. Even though I will say the round robin bits, depending on the teams playing, weren't as much fun because you just the we I felt like there 
almost needed to be a mercy rule in there at some point. But yeah. when you got to the final rounds, it just was fantastic. And that yeah, last and the game, crowd could, yeah, you really got into it, which was exciting. Couldn't ask for anything more on that final nope. hockey game. But we, to, today, we are actually going to talk about one of the aspects of the Olympics that is incredibly necessary and one that everybody relies on when you're sitting at home, and that's the photos. If we don't see the videos and the photos, we can't really take part and experience the games. So we sat down and talked with a photographer. Lou Jones is a Boston-based photographer who specializes in advertising and corporate photography and has also covered Central America warfare and humanitarian causes. But he's also covered 13 Olympic Games, starting with LA 1984 and going through Rio 2016. And he's here to talk about what it takes to be a photographer at the world's greatest sporting event. Here's our conversation with Lou. I've been to many, and uh, and they're you know they're 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 hard work. They're really hard work. So so 1984 was the first, and I understand you got that assignment because of the the Russian boycott, correct? Yes, it was. A, it's a very complicated story. The Russians pulled out, and all of a sudden, tens of thousands of tickets were dumped on the market, and so. And I won't tell you the long story. It's, it's very long. It's one of the most incredible stories of my life. But there were some people at Harvard that were starting a magazine. And we had done work together. They were starting this really very elaborate magazine. And all of a sudden, all these tickets became available. So they hired me to go and photograph the 1984 Olympics for their inaugural, one of their inaugural issues, and that's how the first one came about. If most photographers only do a couple of Olympics, what kept you coming back time and time again? Because you've done, is it 12 games or 13 games? 13 now. 13, okay, 13 so now. you yes. ended in, in Beijing. No, 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 okay. my last one was Rio. Okay, oh gosh, oh gosh, okay. Yes, yes. So it was the last one before this winter. I would have gone this one too, but um, uh, it has got it increasingly hard to find clients for us. You know, okay. That kind of thing. Right. Because the networks, the networks are so, cover this so well. There's so many photographers that want to cover this that you know even the the major magazines can get a lot of their photographs off the wire. So a lot of my clients. Not all, but uh, I, I won't even say the majority, but uh, a, a lot of my clients are uh, uh, subsidiary people. So they're, they're, they're manufacturers of equipment or um, they have some other affiliation with the Olympics. And so they need photographs. And so I've been working for sort of corporate clients and things like that, as well as some of the magazines. Okay. But you kept, you kept going back. What? Yes. Oh, that was the question. It's sort of multi-level. And your, your first question was whether or not I was a, 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 an Olympic freak, you know, or an Olympic devotee long before I became a photographer. So I actually, in high school and in college, ran track and tried, you know, tried to become, you know, a, a good athlete, good enough, you know, kids, oh, I'm going to be in the Olympics someday, you know, and, and I thought, but I was not big enough or fast enough or strong enough or smart enough to, to you know, so, but I still had this major interest. So when, the, when I became a photographer and 
became an eclectic kind of photographer. I chased down lots of and lots of very strange assignments that put me all over the world that, you know, and the Olympics was just, and it fell into my lap, I must admit, but it was still something I had a tremendous interest to begin with. So when I did the first one, it was so intriguing, the aura surrounding the Olympics, especially for as, as far as the insider goes. The tourists, I think, you know, tourists will go once because they want to take, cross it off their bucket list. You need to go to an Olympics, you know, and then it's not very interesting to them because, they, you know, they don't know that much about it. But I was seeing, so, you know, I was following the athlete. I was really, really, you know, I was doing all the research. It was, you know, and then when you get there, there is a sort of a, a fraternity to use a sexist term, but there's a group of people that go and really are into the Olympics. Some because just because of it's a particular sport. There may be equestrians or there may be, you know, and but there are photographers and journalists and people who are really interested in and I so so it's a multi level. So it literally way, 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 way back on my second Olympics, I said to myself, I'm gonna see. I swear to God, I said it to myself way back then I said to myself I'm going to see, because this is a long-term, and I've done lots and lots and lots of long-term projects, many that have gone decades, and this one certainly has, and, and I said I'm going, to do 20, I'm going to do 20 years of Olympics and see if I have an interesting body of work. Well, I'm way past that now. I just kept going back and back. It's different, you know, for each kind of photography, but what about photographing either athletes or the sport is challenging? Well, uh, you know, I've devised a lot of sort of rules of thumb that I have told my students and other photographers about. You know, our, our, there are lots of lazy photographers, and there are lots of photographers that get to go to the Olympics and then end up taking sort of the same pictures. If you look at the end, you know, the end of a race, they'll be, you know, at the Olympics, you know, like Usain Bolt. If you saw, there couldn't have been more photographers in the in one place than anywhere in the world, you know, that you know that were there when he ran won the, his hundred meter in Rio, you know, this final hundred meter at the Olympics. And so, you know, they all get the same picture, and it's fine because it's the front cover of the news, their local newspaper in Sri Lanka or in uh, Borneo or you know in Argentina. So they they all have the him coming across the line. The thing that I noticed years ago, literally with the first Olympic I photographed, was how the editors choose one kind of photograph. And all of these great photographers are taking these wonderful photographs. So I started to look for poetic, lyrical ways of taking photographs to make the photographs themselves interesting, as well as the fact that you've got the best athletes in the world performing at the absolute limits of human achievement. So they're, they're, they're literally doing things that, that physically are impossible and photographically are just, just poetry, just dance, you know, that kind of thing. So making good pictures that are different from your colleagues who are mainly interested in people coming across the finish line and things like that, you know, they're trying to do news. I'm trying to do art. And so that is a whole different thing. And so reinventing ways of making the photographs 
a little different from my colleagues. And one of the things is that when I see a large group, I tell my student, I say, well, as soon as you see a large group of photographers, I go the other way. I don't want to be anywhere near them. You know, that's, they're all going to get the same photograph, basically the same photograph. And I've got to figure out a different way. So it becomes my idea is that the sports are so beautiful that that's all that you need. You don't need these, you don't need the gold medals. You don't need the rah, rah, rah. I'm a, wherever, whatever country you happen to be, you know, I'm sort of, I don't have podium envy. I'm not interested. I am interested because of my client in who gets the gold, silver, and bronze. But the 10th person down the hill or the 10th person across the finish line is the 10th best person in the world doing that event. So they're, they're at a level that is just, you know, so I'm interested in virtually everybody on the thing. And so I'm trying to make photographs very often of people who are doing kind of, unique, you know, or hitting their marks just a little bit differently or holding a line just, to, you know, and they're, because of that, their activity looks a little different than even some, maybe somebody who wins, wins the, uh, the goal. So I'm looking at the sports. I'm looking at the Olympics as a wonderful way to get great photographs. Kind of along those lines, you have a background in physics. Do you use That's that right. to your advantage in trying to calculate some of the moments you want to try to capture? I do, as a matter of fact. And I know that it probably gets in the way in some cases, but a lot of my career has been based upon my not only my ability, because that's what physics really is. is how do you solve a problem? People always think, oh, you know, it's really physics is why does the sun go around the moon, you know, kind of thing. Why is there gravity? Why is there, why, are, why does light hit our eye this way? That's physics. So I talk about very often to my students and to other people about the engineering of photographs. Where do you have to be to get that peak moment? What can you make your cameras and lenses do to make them see things that your eye can't? And a lot of that is physics. So I do use a lot of sort of the mechanics, the engineering, the physics of what's going on, the physical physics of somebody going over a hurdle. You know, where is the point? And I happen to have run hurdles in high school. So I'm looking at the hurdles very differently, say, from somebody who's just interested in who comes across the finish line. I'm looking at the mechanics and where the, where's, the, where's the beauty in that? Uh, where's the beauty in where Where's the most incredible point where you, you know, and that's a lot of that's physical. Where do you put your camera so that you're showing the photograph in a different way now? So have you found certain sports that give you those moments, that give you those unusual artistic points better than other sports? Yes and no. I look at it a little differently. Yes, you're absolutely right. There are, there are some sports that are really quite exciting, and, and, and you know, but almost all of them have places like that. And that's where, you know, like, I know this is terrible, but... Curling is not very interesting to me. I'm like, what? But it has become a, a tremendous interest in to you know the United States and Canada and things like that. Anyway, while the Olympics were going on, I finally figured out. Oh, if I was there, I know where I would want to be to photograph curling. And so 
a lot of sports are like that. If you're shooting sailing, where do you need, you know, I photographed the America's Cup years ago. And, you know, it took me all summer, but I started to figure out where you needed to be to get all these points where, you know, and uh, since I ran track and field, although I like swimming, I like, you know, and a lot of them, they really, there are places and lots of my colleagues could care less, but uh, where there are things going on that really quite, are really quite rhythmic and gorgeous in their complexity. So where would you? I'd where would you? Take each sport and figure out where where its its place is, where what it is doing that makes it look 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 different. Yeah. So where would you need to be for curling? What would that picture be? Oh Jesus! Did you see those photographs from up in the rafters, straight down over the sort of targets? <gasps> that was just that was just beautiful. Those pictures were just gorgeous, and they were using them. You know, they were putting the cameras up above them to show you where the stones were located when you were doing the scoring. But in point of fact, the people doing their activities and, you know, they were creating these beautiful mosaics. The photographs were just outstanding. And they were tossed off to NBC or whatever it was. But I would have, I would have gotten up there and, you know, the way people were laid out and looking straight down on them. What a, what an incredible, I always say to my students again, I say, if you change your perspective, you can change people's point of view and vice versa. And so changing perspective and seeing down on a sport, what are the, you know, a bird's eye view? And those, those pictures were really quite, and so I was like, oh man, I wish I was there photographing curling from above. Did you have a hard time sitting home watching this time? Oh, I was, I was just, I was freaking out. I was freaking <laughs> out. It was so difficult. The first Olympics I came by, this was a few years ago, I think I missed a couple of them. I was apoplectic. I just, it was just, it was because you just had reached in and, and down my throat and ripped out my heart, you know, just watching the, uh, and, and it was the same this time because I have I have such a, a legacy and a commitment to the Olympics, and I find them politically reprehensible in many ways. But the beauty of what's going on, quick story. Years ago, I was shooting uh, Olympic. I think I think I think might have been Alberville in France, and I was shooting. I think it was slalom or giant slalom. And something like that, and I and it's so cold that the tourists literally after the first the most important people come down the hill, most of the tourists start to so literally you if you can get up on the hill, you can see people. It's almost naked. The last people that ski down are skiing almost to nobody around. You don't see that on TV, of course, but the hills get quite empty. But there's still people coming down, and I saw a woman standing way up the hill away from me, and I, you know, and we were packing up to leave because it was the last few years coming down. And I went up the hill, and I, I said, well, you know, why are you still here? And she was dressed completely inappropriately. She had this full-length fur coat, you know, which is just totally inappropriate for, you know, being on the side of a hill like that, you know. And she had a nice little hat and nice gloves and stuff. And she said, my son is coming down. My son hasn't come down yet. And her son was from Mexico, they were from Mexico. And I was like, oh my God, you know, this is different. This is a woman, he doesn't have an entourage. He doesn't have, you know, he's got mom, 
That's it. (laughs) He's skiing in the Olympics. And people were like, booing and now oh, you know you know why you hey you know go home you know i was like this is amazing this guy's in the olympics and they're booing him and i'm like what is this about he's he came down he placed 52nd in that giant slalom 52nd and i and people were booing and i said wait a minute he's the best skier in mexico and he's the 52nd best skier in the world and I realized what the Olympics was all about at that moment. That's what it's all about. He's number 52. He's followed his dream. He's skied in the Olympics. He's gotten to be that good. And, you know, and mom was his only fan, me and me. And I took his photograph. I, I actually ended up mailing her a photograph of him coming down the hill, you know, later on, several weeks later, that kind of thing. And that's the that's what the Olympics is to me, you know. So I'm not a podium envy, and I don't also don't cheer for my as much for the U. You know, I of course I know the people in the USA, and so I'm always rooting for them. But the best Sri Lankan or the best South American or the Jamaicans or whatever it is that are there, hey, they've demonstrated that they're the best in the world, and that's really important. And, and getting great for that, they give you great photographs because. You've got lots and lots of the best people in the world with the best form and the best costumes and, you know, and the Olympics doesn't have any advertising. So you don't have those Budweiser signs in the background that you have at all the other events around. You know, that's one of the really great things about the Olympics is you don't have that kind of blatant Eat at Joe's bar on the chain link fence in the background kind of thing. So it's quite nice. So how do you prepare for an Olympics Physically, because you have a lot of gear, ah. and I imagine it's really heavy. So, yes. what what do you do to to train, basically? I'm getting older, so I had to, at first I was I would start about six. I went to Calgary, and that was my first Winter Olympics, and and I literally thought I was going to die. I could feel my heart coming <laughs> through my parka, going up those to the hill. You know, it's cold. And when I said, okay, when I do the next Winter Olympics, I'm, this is not, I'm not going to let this happen. I thought I was going to die on the side of the hill. So I tr- start training. But now I train eight months out. I start training very, very – I train like a, an Olympic athlete. So uh, I'm running, you know, and, you know, eight months out, it's nice warm weather. You're running. You're doing your push-ups. You're doing your sit-ups. You're doing your – Climbing stairs, that's a really big thing for the winter Olympics. I do a lot of stair climbing, uh, running up and down stairs. I mean, really, really lots and lots of reps. And then when it starts to get cold, I go out and run in the cold weather. I used to run at 11 o'clock at night because I wanted the coldest part of the day. You know, So I'd go out, put on my uh, long underwear and my boots, and I'd run in that, and, and I'd adore, I hate it, but I adore when it snows because I'm running in snow. I literally go out and run in snow up to my knees and I'm running and I mean the sweat just pours off of you. You can't believe how how, uh, hot you get and how exhausted you get. But I'm running in the bad weather and then I'm carrying packs with heavy stuff and stuff like that so that I'm, I look like Arnold Schwarzenegger when I get 
just before I get on the plane to go to a, a new country for a Winter Olympics, you know. And uh, actually, I push it so far that I, I have been afraid the last few times because I'm, I push it so far. It's just like the athlete, you know. They're they're at such such a high level of exertion and training and pushing themselves when they get just before they go to, you know, that it's really, really prime time for hurting themselves. You know, that's when they really can get hurt because, and I've always been the same way. I, you know, I'm really carrying a lot of stuff. And so I train like that. I, and I train in weather. I train in weather. I try to go out and run virtually every day in cold, you know, and I'm testing equipment. And not only that, but I'm testing equipment, which is really a major part of it. I'm testing, I'm testing long underwear. I'm testing socks. I'm testing gloves. I'm testing parkas. I'm testing all kinds of what do I need to keep me warm. I'm testing how it keeps me warm because we have to stay almost motionless in, in a funny kind of way. You know, the athletes are running and jumping. We're just in cold weather, and it's and you're not getting a lot of, and oh, I've had to invent so many techniques to uh, keep warm, to keep active, to keep alert. Your brain goes on lockdown. Your brain literally, the blood just barely flows, you know, it goes to your heart, it goes to your stomach to keep you warm, to keep you surviving. But your brain goes on lockdown when it gets that cold. So being that peak performance for us, is almost the same as for the athletes in order to be able to grab photographs just when we need them. You know, your hands, your body slows down, your your cartilage and bones don't move quite as fluidly, and that's all in training. That literally, that, that eight months of training really puts you, gets you so that you're, you know, so that's the kind of regimen I go through when I'm, uh, when I'm going to, uh, getting ready for the Olympics. Now, what about summer? Because summer, then you've got the opposite problem. I train for both. I don't have to train quite as hard for the Summer Olympics because the weather doesn't take as, isn't as deleterious, at least to me. My, my assistant for the Rio was, he hates hot weather. So he was, he was not in, he didn't do well. I don't even think I thought about the weather the whole time I was there. I don't even think it crossed my mind. So you've, it's, it's interesting for, to me from a photography standpoint. You started in film with yeah. L.A. And you've, and you've gone to digital, I presume. That's right. How has that changed how you've approached shooting the games? And like how much film would you take for uh, the games before versus how much oh, images? Oh, hundreds of rolls. Yeah, we did. yeah we you know we took hundreds of rolls and we shot. The nice thing is, is that the Olympics, and this is part of the lore, you know, and this is it doesn't exist anymore. But Kodak would set up a lab, uh, and they would process 24 hours a day, round the clock. You could go in at any time and get your film processed, and they processed it for free. So that meant, and even at one point, if you were using Kodak film. They would give you a free roll back. Wow! Exactly, and they process so so did you? And you know, back in the day, it would take you like three hours. They process your film. You go back, but you had to go back. You had to go back, get your film, drop it off, get all the, the you know all the labels and everything. Go back a few hours later, get it back. You know, you had to do this, and we would do this too. A couple, maybe even three times a day to get a film. And then we had to edit most of the night. And then computers came in 
you know, so all these eras and computers come in, and then you had to scan the stuff, scan the photographs, and transmit, cause, and the times in which the lag time got shorter and shorter and shorter. So at first, you know, you were several days before your photographs really went into, you know, and then as time went on, computers came in, then you were trying to get film off 24 hours, and then, you know, like in Rio, we would have the film edited, captioned, and transmitted by dinner. So that was the, that's the turnaround. That's the kind of the way it's changed, you know. So yeah, I saw a few of the photographs you had done with double exposures. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is that was that film then? Does that have to be film, or can you do that digitally? Oh, you can do it digitally. You, you can. can. You can. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. You can do. There's all kinds of. You know, that's part of figuring out what uh, what sport fulfills certain kinds of criterion and things like that. Yeah, I talk about lenses have personalities, so you actually can use. You know, and you use a lot of long, long, long. I have lenses that probably only get used pretty much by at the Olympics. You know, they're and they're very expensive and huge and heavy and you know all that. But you can use short lenses, and I say that different lenses have different personalities, so they. They show the Olympics. They show, like I said before, you know, the camera can see things that your eye can't. So we can see that, you know, and they see it in a different way. They see it in a wide-angle way. They show it, see it in a long telephoto way. And you can actually change the way a photograph looks and, and the techniques of blurring and double exposure and all kinds of things like that lend to the, the storytelling. Now, do you have to? Work? You were talking about when, when before when you said about trying out equipment, and you're talking about you know clothes. I was thinking you were going to say lenses. So, is there a concern then in the cold or the heat or the humidity about the equipment itself? Yes, yes. The the major manufacturers, the Canons and the Nikon's, are making equipment that really survives this relatively well. You do get what they. Condensation, which is, is one of the major, major problems, is that, you know, you get condensation. So if you go in and out of hot cold, the camera will shoot at minus 10 degrees easily. But if you go inside and come out, it condenses on the inside and outside of your camera, and you have to wait and all of that. But the thing that gave us the most trouble, and I talked to everybody. I talked to the TV people. I talked to the camera people. I talked to the military. I talked to everybody you can imagine. This is over years of testing what kind of gloves you can wear, what kind of, you know, one of the things is, is batteries. It's, the cameras mm-hmm. seem to do fairly well. It's the batteries that get cold and they stop working. And so we had to solve that problem. And, and we, we solved it in a very unique way, and that kind of thing. So batteries will slow down and stop in cold weather. And so you have to figure out a way of overcoming that problem. Okay, so what was the solution? Well, uh, <laughs> the solution is unfortunately not a very attractive story. So what we do is we got lots and lots of them, and some of them are proprietary batteries that only fit in your camera, only fit in your particular camera. Back in the day, it was double A's. Double A's was the, you know, standard. And so what we do is we carry three or four different changes, and my assistant keeps them against his body underneath his parka. And so we pull out new batteries so that the 
body temperature is keeping the batteries warm. And as soon as the battery in the camera starts to slow down, we, we grab another three or four or five, whatever it is, or the proprietary ones. And we and so we just constantly, and as soon as they get warm, they're fine again. But I know it doesn't sound very attractive, but, you know, so, and my assistants have to deal with, and they, have, they know it beforehand, you're going to be, you're going to have to put these things, and you don't put them directly, but, you know, say your underwear or whatever it is, so that they, they stay warm against your body and, and things like that, and you can keep the, the batteries warm. And that's, it's not glamorous, but I, believe me, when I told Nikon and all those people what I was doing, they just looked at me like I was, I was pond scum, you know, but it works. assistant who is willing to do that. <laughs> well, the, 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 you have to choose your assistants well <laughs> for, the, for the Olympics because that's the least of the bad things. You know, I took a, you know, they don't get any sleep. You know, they think it's going to be a lot, you know, and you have to let them know long before. They think, you know, they don't get any sleep. So for two weeks, people that live with eight hours of sleep and you're going, uh-uh. You know, if you get three or four, you're lucky, and they get real grumpy. So besides lack of sleep, what other challenges it, logistically? There's lots of challenges. One of the, the, the probably the, the main one is that the city, whether it be winter or, or winter is even worse, but the city goes into lockdown. So transportation becomes a real bear. Getting from one location to another is really horrendous because very often they don't let the citizens drive or they restrict driving. They, like in Rio, you could not drive through the middle of the city during the Olympics just because they, they just ringed everybody around. They just rerouted. Now, this, this is the way you have to do it, you know, in order to so that, you know, you can move huge buses of athletes, huge buses of, of spectators, huge buses of referees, huge buses of, of, you know, all kinds of journalists. You're moving these people around, and so they, they have these, oh, you, you can't get from one venue. You can see the venue. You can see it. You can't get to it, you know. Um, in the Winter Olympics, it's even worse because they're, the mountains are so far, you know, some Olympics, the mountains are so distant. You have to go so far to get to the downhill. You have to, you know, so you're getting up at, at 3 o'clock in the morning to get onto a bus, to get onto a train, to get onto a, a, a people mover, to, to be able to get at the bottom of the hill, and then you have to start walking up, up to the top of the hill with all this equipment in the snow, you know, so it's, that's why you work out, of course, but it's also, it's just onerous. 
if it was Barcelona, I can't remember one Atlanta. I can't anyway. And so you go, you start down to the subway, and you couldn't even get into the into the subway stations. There were so many people, you know. So that's one of the logistical problems: getting fed, just eating, being having time to eat. You know, the restaurants are booked up months in advance. You know, so you can't get into anything that's you know that kind of thing. It's all it's all you know. Um, getting in and out of menus. You know, they're just because it's inspection. You got to Oh my God! They just treat photographers like like oh, you know, and they don't know. They're just security people. They don't give a crap that it's your problem. You know, that's a I'm trying to photograph. You know, they don't. You know, they're told to look in everybody's bag for. Coca-Cola or, or I don't know, you, you know, you go through these inspection things where you go through three or four times and they wind you and they, uh, you can't take this in, you can't, ah, oh, it's such a bear. So that's was, the kind of thing. That, was security easier back before 9-11? Yes, yes. Uh, actually, security was probably easier before, if you remember, in Atlanta had that bombing. Right. Yes. You know, the bombing. So the security, they actually build stadiums. They, I noticed this happen, and I think they stopped doing it. They realized that it really was a problematic. I think they built, one year they built a stadium where you literally could not go horizontally through the stadium. You got a ticket, and you could go into a venue, and you could go in there, but you could not travel around to the other side of the stadium. That was done for security purposes. You know, that was done, I think. I, I'm just, this is just surmising. But it made it absolute. I mean, you couldn't believe how, you know, and then I think they stopped doing that because you, you people need to be able to go horizontally. You know, they want to see friends. They need to get, they need to, oh, but they still do it. You stood in in Rio. Uh, the stadiums were segmented off, so that it was hard to get around. You had to go long distances to be able to you know, and my whole thing is to get myself into places. I'm running away from photography. So I'm trying to get into places that nobody else is into, you know, that kind of thing. So it becomes real problem, you know, that kind of security is not my friend. And they probably look at some of the equipment quite askance. That's right. Exactly yeah. right. They're told you can't bring a thermos, you can't bring an umbrella, you can't bring anything longer than a foot, you can't, you know, so they're getting these stupid rules, important, you know, they don't want somebody to have a, a bat that they can hit somebody because, you know, fans get mad at each other, you know, that kind of thing. They can't bring umbrella, you can't, you know, those little short umbrellas, those things, you can't bring, so so that they're told to do that. So when you come in there and you got a monopod or you got a, you know, a two-foot-long lens, they're like, and they don't know what it is. They have no idea what it is. And they're getting, you know, all oh, somebody. So they're calling they're calling their boss over, and their boss is going, well, you know, you're really not supposed to have this. You know, well, I know, but, you know, we're, hey, come on, I'm, I'm shooting this for the, you know. So some are, some are smart enough. At the Olympics, at least for the first half, everybody is trying to make your experience a good one. That's the one thing that we have in our favor. Everybody's trying to help you in general get to with your seat, get the food you need, have a nice experience because it's all, you know, it's all everybody's, oh, this is the Olympics, you know, and they're not, they're volunteers. 
So they don't, you know, they're not hard fit. They're trying to, oh, they're trying to see the Olympics too. But they don't know what they're looking, they're volunteers. They don't know what they're looking at, you know. And so they tend to get into the way, and especially for the second half, because they start to hear every excuse you can imagine. They're listening to people that they can't understand. They're in a different language. So they're frustrated about that, you know, that whole thing. You've done so many games, so it's hard to say is there one moment. But what what surprised you in your the big arc of covering the games as a photographer? What's is there any one thing or a couple of things that have stood out to you and been a surprise on on in your experience? Well, that's a good. That's an excellent question. The the biggest surprise, I guess, is that it has not gotten any easier. And I find that to be kind of complicated, and I can't figure out quite why. I think that they ramp up the security, they make your life more, you know, getting around. Everyone, you, you literally have to solve every country differently. And by the time you sort of solve the country, you know, the Olympics are almost over. So uh, th- that's been the biggest surprise. I thought that being a veteran would have gotten... You know, you'd see, oh, hey, Charlie, how you doing? Yeah, we're back again. You know, okay, Lou, okay, you can go anywhere you want. That kind of that. It's every country is a different, I have to go get a different kind of client. A client that wants to have me do this one could care less about the next one. They have a, an interest, so we have to, you know, so what happens is, is that there's no sort of seniority or experience the only thing I realized that I, I had my client with me this time and in Rio, I'm sorry, not this time, in Rio, and I was able to sort of direct him in a way that I thought made it a little easier to cover different events because I had covered so many. But in point of fact, he went his own way anyway and got into a lot of trouble and stuff like that. So, so but that's, that's not my problem. But it, I was trying to make it a little easier for him, but people don't, don't take advice very well, I guess. But that's the, that's the only thing. I find that it, it's just as interesting. Oh, my God, I was in heaven in Rio. I was in heaven, you know, and I was like, I've been doing this for so long. You know, maybe this is just not going to, you know, I was in heaven. So the, uh, here's another surprise. Uh, this is this is this probably this is probably a real one that I it's become so ingrained is that you don't meet the athletes and that's really problematic. That is really you know I I just thought you know because the security they, they sequester them you know they they move around differently than you are you know so you don't meet lots and lots of athletes. That's that's a thing that I thought would be more since they're all impacted. I've met a few, you know, a couple have jumped up into the stands where we're, you know, to after they win the gold medal. And so their, their, their entourage is there, you know. I've seen them. I've been that close. I met Evander Holyfield sitting in the stands. I sat right next to him and talked to him, you know. I saw the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, uh, Will Smith, you know, uh, at the Olympics, you know, but that kind of thing. But not the athletes themselves, which is, you know, that's kind of strange, I think. And I would love more of that interaction. I've just always thought that that would really be the crowning jewel in my experiences. And it's just never, never really happened. I've met a few, but not, 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 not many. That is interesting because, you know, you, they, 
you have this mutual, mutually beneficial relationship that you never get to like fully develop. That's right. That's right. Sports, the Olympics in particular, but sports in general and photography are brothers from another mother because half a million people will see the Olympics. That's a lot of people, but only, you know, really see it. But millions and millions will see the photographs and the activity, the sport, the event happens in front of the world stage and people want to see. And so we're taking pictures of those peak moments of people achieving, running, breaking the world record in the 400 meter dash and things like that. Oh, nobody's ever done that before. And we're recording it and people can see it. And, and so we need them. We need the athletes because they're performing at such a high, way above human potential, way above. And those produce beautiful photographs and they need us in order to, you know, it's like the, uh, the minister that sneaks away from doing his uh, his Sunday and gives it to his assistant so that he can go play golf. And when he goes out and plays golf, he gets a hole in one. He can't tell anybody. <laughs> it's the same way. The athletes need us in order to tell everybody what they did. I think they go together hand in hand. It's just uh, sports is just made for photographs and photography is just the absolute best vehicle for uh, capturing those moments. You know, think think about think about the Tommy Smith holding his fist up mm -hmm. the 1968 Olympics. It's an iconic photograph. This Olympics, the NBC did a whole hour just on the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City, and made Tom. I photographed Tommy Smith a couple of years ago at his home for a major client and talked to him about that moment and how horrific the world treated him. And now he's an international hero. You know, that's the Olympics. That kind of stage is just unprecedented. So when I was in Rio, I was just in heaven again, seeing these people just doing, oh, it was just it's great. Well, yeah, that's, it's just amazing. And it's amazing the, the experiences you've had. And we really appreciate you taking the time to explain how shooting the games works to us because it is fascinating yeah. to get that glimpse that we we all enjoy looking at the pictures, but we don't necessarily think about what goes into making that happen. Right, we don't, yeah. we don't think about how the That's sausage right. is made. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're working as hard as the athletes in many cases. So that's one of the things behind the scenes. And I don't mind that behind the scenes. It's just that I always think that they can make it a teeny bit easier for us. You know, I just don't know why. You know, the writers, they, 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 they treat the writer, they have food for them. They have, they don't treat, they don't, they don't even talk. They don't make it easier for the photographers. I don't get it. I don't understand why. I just never have understood why. So, anyway. It's that, it's that two-foot lens, Lou. It's, <laughs> that's right. That's right, that's right. <laughs> they just don't trust that two-foot lens. <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> so, so, are you hoping for 2020? Yes, yes, yes. We're actually, we actually were talking about it here in the studio just uh, about two weeks ago about what we, what uh, a, a different approach that we might be able to make to, um, to covering the 2020 Olympics. Absolutely. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Lou, for joining us. You can find Lou's work at 
photojones.com. That's F-O-T-O jones.com. He's on Twitter and Insta at lujones2008. And uh, he spells Lou L-O-U. We'll have links to his sites and his feeds in our show notes. And man, it's a lot of work to be a photographer. Like it a, is a lot of work. Yes, I was exhausted just thinking about, you know, when he was talking about, cl- you know, training on the steps. I'm like, oh, my God, he's like the Rocky of photographers. Right. But I mean, I can only imagine how much that improved his endurance because right. you really need that for when when he's talking about what they have to do for two weeks in a row or longer for a summer games, even though the weather is better. But you're hauling heavy equipment, walking up a hill, walking up a ski hill. That's just insane to me. I know. So we've now talked to an official who does training. Mm -hmm. You know, when we spoke to Jessica Clark, how she gets into shape and the photographer who gets into the shape. I think we need to talk to a personal trainer who's going to make a plan for us. Oh, to get in podcast. Yeah, we do need. Oh, my gosh. We do need to get in shape for Tokyo because, man, because, you know, Pyeongchang was rough. That was hard. I mean, we sort of went into it clueless like Lou did in 84. He had no idea what he was getting into. And then you realize, wow, this is a lot of phys- – I mean, I did not expect the physical right. challenges of just not sleeping and you know, keeping the voice safe and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, so we have to. We're gonna have to. Work I think on we that. need our own training regimen. So if people have suggestions for us, right? Or if you're a personal so, trainer, so you start. Yeah, so he starts eight months ahead of time. So we have about a year to plan out right what we need to do right to get ready for Tokyo. Right, and that'll be that'll be weird. I know. <laughs> I'm already worried about it. <laughs> I'm worried and I'm excited because we're going to go We're we've been saving up. We've started a fund and I know we're going to, I know that some of the listeners also want to go. So we're going to talk about how to plan and prepare in an upcoming show, because if you're in America, you got to start now and probably in Europe, you probably need to start saving now too, because those are pretty long, right. long journeys and you want to stay for a while. So you've got to make it last. Right. And Japan is not a, an inexpensive country to visit. That is correct. Unrelated to the Olympics. so Right. Yeah. The preparation needed to to travel and deal with jet lag and then deal with very long days. It's, it's amazing the endurance we needed to be able to just watch television. I know. So <laughs> Like watch television and chit chat. I mean, who knew? We yeah, I know. Needed- don't you don't you have a big new respect for TV critics? <laughs> I do. Oh my god. And I really have a big respect. You know, I used to think that you know Bob Costas and this time Mike Trigo. Oh, he's just sitting in the studio. He's not traveling around. He's. Oh my god, those guys work so hard. Right, and the preparation that they have to do in the study, and even though they probably got a million assistants and research people doing a lot of the work, they still had to read it and come up with they questions have, and, and have right. good things to say. I mean, they still have to be out there alone when you're doing the interview and re- be able to recall all that information and have mm-hmm. all that, all those things. So, you know, you don't think about, you think about the athletes training. Right. And this has really taught me that everybody involved with the Olympics from volunteers straight up through, mm-hmm. the preparation is amazing. 
Right. Right. And it's amazing when you think about how many years of training go into an event that lasts, for some people, a few seconds, and for other people, a couple of weeks. But, man, it's a lot of work. And it's, in, it's interesting that it is what it is and why, why it's and so it, important. And it makes me love it more. It's like the more I learn about it, the more I love it, which is not always the case. Right. There are, there are unsavory, unsavory things about the Olympics, too, but yeah. but the whole joy and love of sport and love of creating something much bigger than you it far outweighs that in my book. Yeah, I agree. That's why we do this. On that note, I think we'll call it a day here in the Olympic Fever Studios. Get to training. I got to go climb some stairs. Oh, man. <laughs> Lou, you've inspired us. That's all I can say. So we will talk to you again next week. Thanks so much for listening and have a good week. Stay in touch. Email us at olymfever at gmail.com. That's O-L-Y-M-Fever at gmail. You can also leave us a voicemail at 530-763-3837. That's 530-70-FEVER. We're on Twitter at Olympfever, and you can join in the conversation at our Facebook group, Olympic Fever Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive. Ooh, you've inspired us. That's all I can say.